Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing and all of our other podcasts over at blisterreview.com. So last week on the show, we talked to Sanjay Rawal about his new film, Gather, which takes a look at the growing food sovereignty movement among Native American tribes across the United States. And this week, we are once again talking about food, but this time we are talking about why and how we need to reinvent the way that food is being grown and farmed and the critical role that bees play in all of this. Our guests today are Peter Nelson and Sally Roy, who have made the film The Pollinators, which tells the fascinating and very interconnected story of bees and beekeeping and soil and farming practices and pesticides and the EPA and almonds and why the perfect apple is actually not the perfect apple. And it actually gets into a whole lot more than all of that. And so, while this film might seem like it's this tiny little movie about bees, it's actually kind of a gargantuan exploration of why we need to change the way we produce food literally from the ground up. And it gets into what each of us, you and I, can do to help the cause. The Pollinators comes out tomorrow, June 16th, on iTunes and Amazon and Google Play and Vimeo On Demand, pretty much all digital platforms. But right now, you can watch the trailer of this film in the show notes to this episode on the Blister website. And I really do hope that you all will check out this film. And so now, let's go ahead and get to my conversation about all of these really big and really little topics with Peter Nelson and Sally Roy. Well, I am here with Peter and Sally. Peter, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Great. And Sally, are, now you guys are in the same space or vicinity or town right now. Is this? Do I have this right? We're we're in the same house in um, <laughs> in in upstate New York. We're in different parts of the same house, and uh, we live in uh, uh, the Hudson Valley region uh, near the Gunks, which you probably know. I do. Is a I climbing do. Mecca. So let's just, before we get going here, I want to learn just a little bit more about your respective backgrounds. So Peter, why don't you give us a little bit um, about your background here, and then we'll we'll talk to Sally a bit about her own. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, the Pollinators is a film that I directed and photographed and co-produced with Sally and uh, our editor, Michael Ruder. Um, and the, I'm a cinematographer by profession, and I work uh, mostly in the field of documentaries, but also commercials, but I've also done narrative work and still do that from time to time. But mostly I've been focused on documentaries and commercials for the last 15 years or so. And Sally? So I've been a documentary um, producer for films and televisions um, for about, for, you know, years. And... Um, I've worked a long time in documentary uh, news and public affairs television with Bill Moyers at, mm. at PBS. Mm -hmm. Wow, interesting. Would I would I know some of the documentaries you produced? 
You might know a film called Endurance, which was about Haile Geber Selassie and yeah. the Atlantic, Atlanta Olympics. Yep, I do for sure. I produced that movie. <laughs> oh, that's excellent. Okay. Peter has a, other documentaries that you would recognize as well. Yeah, I've, I've worked with a, a filmmaker called Doug Prey. We did a film called uh, Art and Copy about advertising, mm -hmm. um, a great film. Um, and then I've also worked on films uh, with Michael Moore, um, even though I've never actually met him. I've worked on films, films mm -hmm. with him, which is kind of funny. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's, been, it's been a great, great adventure. But then in terms of getting into this particular film, The Pollinators, um, in addition to making films, Peter, you have been a beekeeper for some time. Do I have this right? Yeah, I've been a backyard beekeeper for a little over 30 years now. And um, it, so this is literally started as a backyard project. And I wanted to, I mean, I grew up as a I grew up as a free range kid, so to speak, always outside, very much interested in nature and the outdoors, the natural world, and have a fascination with birds and insects and fish and all those things. And so keeping bees was one of my hobbies. Um, and uh, it just I just get lost in it. It's kind of an amazing um, avocation. And I, um, I wanted to try and tell this story and combine my work as a cinematographer with my uh, interest in bees and Sally and I share an interest in food systems and agriculture and the culture around food. And so this was really a passion project for us. That's the way it started. And it's just been an amazing journey. So Sally, we'll start with you and then maybe we'll kick it to Peter. But if we were going to just ask the seemingly simple question, what is this film about? How do you answer the question? This film is about our food system and the door that we went through to try and talk to people about the food system is migratory bees and migratory bees showed us or led us right into how we grow food in this country. What's problematic about it and what are some alternatives to the system we currently have and the, there've been many, many films about food in America and food systems in America most of them leave you want to leaving you want to jump off a bridge hmm. but the idea about this film was to introduce you to a part of the food system you didn't probably didn't know about and then explain and then show you what's wrong what are some problems in the food system and how we might do it differently how'd she do peter she did great yeah it was uh and i i, I thought that these migratory beekeepers that move these bees are, I just found them great characters, mm. really interesting, kind of iconoclastic, almost like cowboys and truckers and ranchers, all rolled up in one, independent, often family run businesses. And they work incredibly hard doing a job that very few people know they do. And there are only a couple of thousand of them. And yet our agricultural system and therefore our food system is largely dependent upon the work that they do. So I'm gonna assume that they're are some people listening to this right now who maybe are at the point of like, yeah, I guess I've heard something about bees are important in some element of growing our food, but I don't have a very good sense of that. So for those people, and I would be, I'm, you know, before I watch this film, certainly I'm among that group. 
talk about um, why is this important, like bees and food systems, for those of us who might be pretty unfamiliar? When we go into a supermarket and buy a piece of fruit, an apple, per se, people don't often think about that a bee was involved in the production of that apple. It was an essential part of it. So the pollination has to happen first, the pollination of the flower uh, to create the fruit. And that's true with about 400 uh, different common things that we eat from almonds to avocados to watermelons uh, to coffee, importantly, coffee. Um, and so insects are involved in all of that. And an essential part of that process is to have that pollination. The problem comes is when agriculture, and it has gotten simplified more and more and more chemically dependent since largely the Second World War. And so as our agricultural system has gotten more simplified and chemically dependent, native bees um, you know, are not able to um, pollinate these large single crops, the monocultures like almonds uh, that uh, people are growing. And they grow them for simplicity. And so this relationship between uh, migratory beekeepers and agriculture has evolved. It's been going on for a long time, but it's really evolved as agriculture has gotten more simplified to more monocultures and larger tracts of these single crops so that they have to bring in bees in order to achieve that pollination. So the farmers are using the bees and the beekeepers as essentially an insurance policy to ensure the pollination so they have a crop. And so the, the beekeepers are responding to that. You know, some of the beekeepers we talk to, their their fathers and grandfathers, uh, and it is largely male, there are female beekeepers, but particularly the last generations were mostly male, um, you know, kept bees um, and left them out, but they, they had to, they found that it was an economic incentive to move these bees because the farmers pay them for this pollination service. And so they effectively have two income revenue streams. Uh, They effectively have two revenue streams, one from pollination services and then one from honey production. And those things go hand in hand. Um, And it's all working until we have these losses that these beekeepers are facing, which can be 40, 50% or more. And so that kind of loss in any business can be devastating. And so it's very vulnerable, the system, because of the dependency and because of those losses. Hmm. Okay, so we need bees to go about pollinating plants um, so that we can grow a number of vegetables and fruits. Are, are you signed off on that? Or, or is that, did I, is that, do you care to add to that? And nuts. And nuts, nuts are important. And nuts. <laughs> now, Talk a little bit about like what is pollination? What is that process? I'd really like to like really crystal clearly connect the dots for people. Bees are critical to food sources because they do the work of pollinating and without pollination, there's like a whole lot of food that we just don't get to grow, right? So can you talk to us a little bit about what pollination actually is? Yeah, so so what pollination is, is you're actually moving the genetic material, the pollen, from one part of a flower to another flower. And so you're essentially uh, fertilizing it. And that pollen, which is the male part, if you will, the sperm, if you will, uh, uh, and that goes down into the female part of the flower, and then it forms, uh, it, it fertilizes, and then it becomes the, uh, the seed, the, the fruit, the nut as it grows. So you need those two parts. And uh, 
there are a couple of different ways. There are many different ways that that pollination happens uh, by wind. And some big crops that we know are pollinated by wind. Most of the grain crops, the corn, the rice, the wheat, that's all wind pollinated. But then animal pollination, which includes uh, bees, uh, bats, birds, butterflies, uh, that's another way that it happens. And so the bees, in this case, move the, the pollen from one flower to another. And it's not like they're intentionally doing it. They're doing it because it sticks to their... Um, their body, their the fur or hair on their body, if you will, and moves it flower to flower because when a bee flies, it'll hit you know fifty to a hundred flowers at a at a flight, and so it it's interesting to think about the fact that insects and flowers have co-evolved through millennia, so that the flower needs the insect to do that, and the insect they what they get out of it is the pollen which they do consume, but then also the nectar in the case of honeybees, turns into honey. Yeah, pretty pretty remarkable. Sally, how are we doing? Are we, are we missing important things yet? I, I'm going to put it in very simple terms. If the flowers aren't pollinated, you don't get any fruit. So you could have a beautiful apple orchard that is gorgeous to look at, but if there's no pollination, the flowers will off the tr- fall off the trees and that'll be the end of that. And so if, if you want fruit, nuts, seeds, vegetables... You need to pollinate the flower at the point that it flowers. And then you'll some number of weeks or months later, you'll get your harvest. So there's kind of a fascinating thing going on in this film that, you know, kind of right from the jump, there is this coverage of something that I knew very little about, which is this whole business of like renting bees and moving bees and beehives all around the country. So I'd love to hear you guys talk a little bit about this and like, why is this happening? Yeah, so, so the people have started to move bees. I mean, they've been, moving, they've been moving bees for many, many, many years, but it's really gotten um, more important as agriculture has gotten more simplified and chemically dependent. And so when you have one massive crop, a monoculture in a field, it blooms one time a year and therefore it's a bounty for whatever pollinators are there. But then the rest of the year, there may not be much, if anything, to eat unless there's other stuff, other flowers growing around it. So um, the, the importance of moving bees has kind of evolved with that change to more monoculture and large agricultural systems. So it's an insurance policy that uh, farmers use to bring in bees. And bees, the honeybees are one of 4,000 species of bees in North America and not native to North America, by the way. Um, But they have the unique ability to be able to be picked up and moved. And because bees go back to their home at night, into their hive, the beekeepers often move them at night uh, so that they can move them from one crop to a new area. And so the beekeepers have, uh, have found that this is an important revenue stream for them um, and a necessity to the food system in order to move these bees around. And so it's kind of this very specialized thing that happens that most people don't know about because it happens often at night. Um, they're covered up with a giant net on the back of a flatbed truck and there'll be 400 or so hives on the back of there and they move them into a remote area so people don't even notice it. And yet it's this essential essential process in the whole agricultural system. 
it's it's a question, you know, in, in the U.S., do, you know, we grow a million acres of almonds in the Central Valley, all in one big territory. And so when you do that, you're guaranteeing, you're creating an environment where nothing native can sustainably live there all year long. So that as it gets simpler and simpler for farmers to farm and harvest, because, you know, if you have a machine that, that harvests almonds... Why not harvest a million acres of almonds? But the fundamental thing of pollination becomes difficult because you've created a, a food bounty for one month and a food desert for 11. And so that, you know, you make, you make it easier in one end of the world and you, you present a challenge to yourself in another end of your, of your business. And so the solution to the challenge of how do we make sure that all of these flowers get pollinated is that you say, okay, let's bring in more, let's be sure we have bees, let's bring them. So, I don't know, this might be a little bit of an oversimplification or a misguided way to, to think about this dynamic. But on the one hand, I was like, well, do we just need to have a lot more bees in this country? Or is it like, well, that's actually not so much the issue. It is that we are farming a million acres of almonds and it's like that is a bit of a an unnatural situation to be in i guess does that make sense oh totally okay. yeah and and it's you know the 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 honeybee is not necessarily the best pollinator for certain crops there are other bees that uh, pollinate some crops better than honeybees the population of a honeybee hive can can raise from 20,000 in the spring up to 60,000 or more in the summer. So you've got this incredible explosion of population and they, they can be reproduce really quickly so that if you have losses, you can mitigate those losses somewhat. And that's kind of unique among the bees, uh, that fact that they, their population can, is so dynamic, but then also that they're movable. And so as Sally said, uh, you know, having a monoculture is not necessarily the best thing for bees because bees, all bees need a diverse and successional uh, growth of flowering plants in order to eat. They need this for a nutrition, uh, a good diverse diet is, is important for bees, just as it is for us. Uh, but they also need to have that so that they have actually have food uh, all times of the year. And when you have a bloom that happens for you know, three weeks or six weeks or seven weeks, and then nothing, it's a food desert for mm -hmm. the bees that might live there. Mm -hmm. So this is one way for us to think of, like assuming a number of us have heard the term monoculture and we're like, yeah, that sort of maybe has some negative connotations. This is one concrete way to understand that is that that monoculture is leading to food shortages for things like bees. Um, and so we got to get into this process of moving them all around. Is that, is that a fair way to understand that? Correct. Okay. Yep. Then you don't need, there, there are farmers and, and any gardener knows this, that you don't have to bring in bees in order to have pollination. If you have a diverse successional uh -huh. uh, flowering plants all year round. And so like we have you know, four hives right now in the backyard here, they get enough to eat because there's a lot of different things that they can forage mm -hmm. on all around us. And, you know, we're, we're lucky that way where we live because we don't live in one of those areas where you have these giant monocultures where the only thing growing is uh, corn and soy. So 
maybe I want to circle back on this question of like, bees are dying. That is a thing that has been happening for at least some number of years now. Peter, could I have you say a bit more about like just what is happening here? Yeah, so most people know that there is a problem with bees, but they don't necessarily know what the problem is. And it's really important to note that it's not one thing. It's a combination of factors that are really messing up the bees. And one factor is pesticides. There's no question about that. But there's also parasites. A varroa mite is terrible for the bees, and it's a problem that that every beekeeper has to deal with, myself and the guy who has 100,000 hives, because they spread viruses to the bees and they are... Um, they will kill a hive. And if you don't deal with them, you're gonna have an empty beehive. Um, but also nutrition, and this goes back to monocultures, that having a diverse agricultural system and diverse pl flowering plants is important for bees to have that widespread uh, nutritional balance that we need like they do. Um, habitat loss through development, through loss to um, housing developments, through um, uh, monocultures, uh, climate change is a factor. Um, th these are all factors that are all conspiring and work together against the bees. And that is all those things are compounding into having these serious losses that these beekeepers face. So uh, one of the scientists in the film, Sam Ramsey, says, if you think of it as a triangle, it's parasites, pesticides, and poor nutrition. And the, as Peter just laid out, you know, varroa mites, you, you, any one of those things the bees could probably deal with, when you pile on all three, it, it makes it really hard. Okay, so we're talking about the struggles that bees are having just in terms of surviving. We've talked about this business of renting bees and moving them around the country. Talk a little bit more about like the relationship of beekeepers and their bees. Yeah, so, so beekeepers, um, there's this funny relationship with bees and beekeepers is that they're not pets. Um, they're wild animals, but they're somewhat domesticated. And so beekeepers and bees have had this kind of uh, interesting relationship for thousands of years, literally. And it's important to know that these commercial migratory beekeepers that move these bees around the country for agriculture really care about their bees. And they get loaded on a truck. Yes, they do. 400 or so hives covered with a net and moved to a different area for new pollination uh, or for honey production. But these beekeepers really care and take care of their bees. And um, that's, I think, something that tends to get a little bit overlooked in this discussion of migratory beekeepers. They work really hard to transport them when it's not too hot or too cold or in areas where they won't have to sit on the truck too long and they do it as expeditiously as possible because it doesn't benefit anyone or especially the bees if they, you know, if they have a problem along the way. So they, they really care about their animals. They're, they are considered livestock by the USDA. And so they tend to use truckers that are used to handling livestock and know like they don't want to stop in the middle of the day. So when they stop, it's at night when the bees will be in the hive and, uh, but they give them water and they just, they try and do it as humanely and safely and carefully as they possibly can. So I want to talk a bit about, um, related to monoculture, right? Is like 
getting a better understanding of seasonality. And this just strikes me that, you know, each of us individuals as consumers, we all probably need to just have a better understanding and a better appreciation of like where our role comes in to all of this, right? Um, with with the issue of monoculture and seasonality. And basically, I think here in this country, the kind of expectation that we can walk into a grocery store anywhere in the country at any time and get exactly whatever piece of fruit we feel like eating that day. Talk to us a little bit about those issues, because that's a, that's a significant part of the film as well. Seasonality is super important in this. And you know, I know when I was growing up that we anticipated strawberry season, we anticipated apple season. And, you know, th those things happen once a year when they were local and grown in the area where we grew up. And now here we live in, in upstate New York and you can go into virtually any supermarket all year round and buy raspberries. And buying raspberries in February is not necessarily a natural thing. And I'm talking fresh raspberries. So that's the benefit of a, of a very good food distribution system, a global food system that we have in this yeah. country and, and transportation, but it is not necessarily, I guess the best way, I don't want to pass judgment, but it's not necessarily the best way to live. So we want to try and raise the consciousness about that is like, do, what, what, what does eating seasonally mean? Right now, here in June, we're just coming into some really, really good times for fresh local produce. Um, and we've, those seasons have been, been extended here because of, you know, high tunnels and greenhouses and things where, where the farmers are innovative and, and able to extend the season. But, you know, should we be eating pumpkin now? Uh, you know, I don't know. Hmm. It, it's, it's, it's not what's growing. And so, so we wanted to try and connect people more to what's growing around them. It's an interest that Sally and I both have whenever we've traveled is going to farmers markets and seeing what people are growing, hmm. what they're selling in that area, whether it's here or in France or Japan or wherever, and, and trying to understand what the local farmers are growing and just get a little bit plugged into and aware of what the farmers around you are growing. And it's also really important to establish those local economies, those sustainable local economies, because you, you want to have those farmers there to produce good, uh, local, healthy food. But the relationship is between the consumer and the farmer. And so you have to have that kind of relationship and commerce through a farmer's market or through a CSA. And that's just a really important thing for people to think about. Sally, how are we doing here? <laughs> you know, um, Peter talks about the bounty of the harvest. And that is where you get a massive connection to your food. I mean, I remember as a child when you had tomatoes, you had thousands of, you know, ba baskets and baskets of tomatoes or cherries or whatever the harvest was. And there is, uh, you had a, a connection to the, earth cycle and when things happened. Um, I think we also have now such a small selection of apples that you can go. I mean, you could buy six or seven different kinds of apples in the store. There are thousands of varieties of apples that we just don't grow anymore because they don't travel well or they don't ripen well or they don't, you know, they're not the perfect apple because they bruise too easily. Whereas uh, we live very close to a uh, apple orchard that Bard College manages. And we went there 
last fall at harvest time, and we were just gobsmacked because there was 40 varieties of apples, apples I'd never heard of before, and they were so delicious and so flavorful. And you forget that, you know, there's more than Red Delicious and Macintosh. Um, but again, if you make it smaller and easier to create and produce and transport, that becomes the equation of what's a good thing to eat. Whereas you wonder, shouldn't it be as it tastes good? Is it good for you? And those are, you know, when you're trying to serve two objectives, one is, can I truck this 10,000 miles or, you know, fly it from Central America or to get it to a supermarket in New York State in February? Or should we just be growing food that we can move around sustainably that tastes really good? I mean, those are the trade-offs you have with, you know, availability versus diversity. And importantly, in this particular time that we're living right now in the coronavirus COVID experience, <laughs> um, the, you know, having those local farmers is really important because we've seen hiccups in our, in our food system because, you know, a meat plant got shut down or the distribution got interrupted or whatever else, you know, we've seen inklings of that. So it touches a little bit more on food security too. Yep. And so having those relationships with those farmers and importantly, the land that people can farm is really important. And we're lucky here in the Hudson Valley where we live in that there are a lot of uh, legacy farms that have been the same family for hundreds of years that are now being farmed by people that, um, you know, you might have, there's a farm in our town that has eight different farm operations on it now. And they used to be a dairy farm way back and then they grew corn. And now there are eight different enterprises in this one farm that are all supporting their families and providing food and local flowers and things, compost, for goat cheese, for, for all these different um, um, aspects. And it's wonderful. It's really great. And it's important to support those local, those local enterprises and local farmers. Let's talk about pesticides. You know, I think we could view these, right, as a technology that had good intentions and has good intentions, perhaps. But we're certainly seeing side effects of this, and I would, um, and the film, again, does a really nice job, I think, of discussing some of these issues and talking a bit about the history, but um, I'd like to give you guys a chance to talk a little bit about a, I think, a pretty massive question, right? A lot of people think that the problems that bees are facing, and most people realize that there is a problem with the bees, um, it isn't one thing, and pesticides are one aspect of that, but it's an important aspect of that. And pesticides, uh, I'm not anti-pesticide. I should go on record and say that because they do have a role in our um, agricultural system. And sometimes they're a necessity depending on what you're doing. However, they are often overused. Um, they are not tested completely before they're put into service and, um, and put into the fields. And a lot of times they have, um, you know, uh, after effects and side effects that are long past what they are intended to do. And one of the things that's important for American audiences to know is that the European Union has something called the precautionary principle. And this is a philosophy where you 
something is tested completely before it's put into use and only after it's safe is it put into use. And here in the United States, we don't operate under the precautionary principle. And a lot of times the, the manufacturers themselves will do the testing and um, they will not test under optimal circumstances and they'll put it into market and see what happens. And then a lot of times it's, it doesn't really work out as well as we would hope. And there's a lot of side effects and, and uh, misuse of a lot of times it doesn't work out. And there, there are some byproducts and side effects that work against the pollinators. And importantly, with pesticides, it's not only that an insect gets sprayed, a pest gets sprayed and gets killed. But what happens oftentimes with bees is you get what's called a sublethal dose. And that's a, a dose of pesticide that they will uh, ingest in, either intentionally or accidentally. And it, will, uh, be, it won't be enough to out and out kill them, but it will affect them. It'll affect their reproductive rate. It'll affect their communication. It'll affect their navigation, or it might kill them you know, two or three or four days later. And so some of those effects are, are really devastating to the colonies. The benefit of some of these new systemic pesticides that are in use is that they're much safer for human beings to handle. And so there is that aspect of it. These pesticides are often used as systemic pesticides. And so they're either coated on the seed or sprayed on the ground, and they grow up systemically through the vascular system of the plant. So if a pest bites on it, it would kill it. But it also goes into the nectar and the pollen. And that's sometimes where bees uh, come into contact with it. Even if it's something that they're not pollinating, it can infect them down the road. So mentioning that the European Union's policy on pesticides, at least on the face of it, seems like a good idea. Let's uh, let's be sure we're not introducing new pesticides and then find out five or ten years later or something that there was a bunch of unintended consequences to them. But would you guys say that there is, like, say, a single country right now that, in your opinion, is doing the best job of you know, handling a number of these different variables, whether it's from monoculture to use of pesticides and the like, is someone setting the best example right now? It's a good question. And I don't know if I can answer that. I think what the European Union has done is that they've, they've put a ban on these neonicotinoid pesticides and they re-upped it again last year because it was having positive effects. And so as a whole, the European Union um, I think is a little bit ahead of us on this. Um, they're also much smaller. You know, the, the, the sheer size and scale of agriculture in the United States is just massive. And so, and in terms of beekeepers, it's also massive. You know, our, our largest beekeeper here has somewhere around 100,000 hives. And I think the largest in France might be over a little over 3,000. Hmm. So the scale is just massive. And they do move bees there in Europe. But they're moved much more extensively here because we do have more and larger monocultures here. And that is a, a big part of the problem. So, I mean, notionally, when you move bees, I mean, it's a balancing act for anyone who's producing food. You move bees to your orchard or your uh, whatever you're growing um, to, to pollinate them. At the same time, you want to protect them against unwanted pests. So you're spraying and you're bringing bees in and... You know, it's a balancing act to not spray when the bees are there, but still have the bees there when you need pollination. 
And in some ways, it's, you know, how, how can we be thoughtful about that? And it's, it's difficult. Um, you know, a single farmer can say, my bees are leaving on Thursday, I'll spray on Friday. But bees can forage five miles. So, you know, farmer John down the road, you know, he wants to spray on Wednesday. Your bees are still there. They fly over to his farm and they get dosed by the um, pesticides that he's spraying. So it's a complicated dance of needing to do several things all at the same time and communication among people who are um, spraying and, and pollinating all at the same time is, is not as good as it could be. Um, and in terms of the chemicals and the pesticides, we, you know, as Peter was saying, other countries have a precautionary principle. I mean, we um, have asked the companies to self-regulate and we know people are not the best at that. And, and it's not only in uh, the pesticide fields that people can't effectively self-regulate. It takes an extraordinary company to say, you know what, our product isn't good. Maybe we shouldn't do that. <laughs> and there's, importantly, there's also a corporate influence on policy, you know, at our federal government, you know, with the EPA and the USDA. And um, we have a lot of corporate influence. And it's not just in this field. It's in many other fields as well, um, in energy and and uh, land conservation and everything else is you're there there's a corporate influence there by political appointees that sometimes works against um, the benefit for the rest of us okay so i think what i want to do with the rest of our time here is talk a little bit about one some things that each of us as individuals can be doing you know, and can be more mindful of to, you know, help the situation and and not be part of the problem. And then I think I want to move to just get your sense of sort of systemically, what are the most significant changes that need to happen to just improve this whole food system culture, you know, and program that we're, we're in. So let's go with the individual just so I'm, you know, I'm living here in Crested Butte and we've got people listening in a bunch of other areas of the world. Uh, what should we be thinking about on the individual level? One of the great things about this topic that I really absolutely love is that there's something everyone can do to make it better. And some problems that we're facing now in our world, climate change and things like that, there, there are it's very difficult to, for an individual to feel like they're making a difference. And this issue is something that everybody can make a difference. And it can be really simple, like supporting your local beekeeper and buying local honey from your neighborhood beekeeper. And they're all over the world, all over, every state has beekeepers, every county has beekeepers. So they're around, you just have to find them. And, but you can also do things, um, you can grow a garden that is suitable for pollinators with a succession of pollinating plants. You can support those local farmers markets and the CSAs. You can educate kids and teachers and elected officials about the importance of pollinators and their essential need. You can work on uh, legislation. There, uh, There's legislation now in, I think in 2020 on the agenda, there's uh, there's over, um, I think there's 17 states that are have uh, pollinator protection bills that are running through their their legislators. So you can, if you're politically inclined, you can get involved in that end. And so, um, 
there's you can become a beekeeper. So that's that's a, 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 a an important thing. Or one thing that a lot of people can do if you're lucky enough to have a a, a yard and a lawn is to eliminate pesticide use and eliminate uh, herbicides. And the idea of this monoculture that we talked about, one of the big monocultures in the U.S. is a green lawn. And so that's something that, you know, we can all work to make better, to incorporate flowering plants into that lawn uh, to make it uh, better for all pollinators. I, w- I was outside today and uh, I was looking at a square couple of feet, uh, my feet out in our lawn, and I saw four different pollinators in a foot on the clover that was there. And it was just amazing to me. I, I just love that, that having that diversity right at our own feet. It's something that everybody can do. Rethinking what's a good flower, dandelions are one of the earliest things that comes up in the spring. And everyone thinks I got to get these dandelions out of my lawn, but they're great for pollinators. Sally, I love you right now because I'm looking at the dandelions out at my house. And now I'm, if any of my neighbors don't like it, I'm just like, mm, I'm just, I just love bees. You know, we have a massive amount of clover in our lawn and, you know, let the clover grow long and, you know, the bees will pollinate it and it's something for them to forage and to feed on. And it's, you know, how do we rethink, as Peter says, one of our biggest national monocultures is the green lawn. We saw around the country, people had signs that say, don't spray, I have bees. People have lawn services and they have very, very green lawns. And I don't think they connect the dots of what is that lawn service putting on my lawn to make it that green? Like, Mm -hmm. ask your lawn service, are you putting chemicals on my lawn? Peter, other things just as individuals we can do? Yeah, we talked about the, the farmer's markets. The farmer's markets is really important. Uh, to support those those farmers, land preservation um, is is a key for farming, um, as well as keeping conservation areas is key for for pollinators. Uh, one thing that people don't often think about is weeds, and weeds on the roadside are a great source of nutrition, nectar, and pollen for all pollinators. And it breaks my heart to see my tax dollars going to spray with an herbicide. Uh, what would be good forage for bees. And, you know, that's something that we can rethink. And that's something that also can be done on a local level. You know, we have towns around us here in New York that have put bans on using neonicotinoids in that town and in the parks and not spraying on the roadsides. And all those things add up. And these, these things are completely scalable. And even in cities, you know, cities are really important and often not thought about in terms of benefits for pollinators. But if you have rooftop gardens or uh, planters even, that uh, they become these sort of little habitats where bees can move. Many bees are have a very short distance that they fly. Honeybees can fly up to five miles or so, but a lot of bees will only move a couple of hundred feet. So if you have those small little islands of habitat, connect them so that you can get other bees and spread those pollinators around because they're all important. They all do uh, good things for us. And, and they're part of our, our system that's really essential. Peter makes a really good point that, you know, we may not be able to march down to Washington and stand on the floor of the, the uh, House of Representatives and say, this must change. But you could go to your town meeting or you could work on the county level or you can work on the state level and you can address the problem in your backyard, as it were you know, maybe suggest to the town instead of spraying, they mow. And, you know, the downstream effect people don't think about is where does the runoff of all the herbicide they put on the roadsides go? 
you know, it goes into the rivers and then you're affecting the fish. And, you know, the, the notion that we should just keep covering the earth in chemicals isn't quite, maybe not the best idea. I mean, we should think back to Rachel Carson uh, mm. and Silent Spring. I mean, she raised the, she raised the, the alarm bells in 1961 and we should heed that warning. We should continue to heed that warning. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't take much to think. I, I, I'm a fly fisherman. And so when I see uh, systemic uh, neonicotinoid pesticides that are water soluble sprayed on crops that go into a creek, I know what trout feed on. They feed on insects, aquatic insects. And so that's the literal downstream negative effect of what some of these pesticides can do. I think I want to transition us over to kind of the big macro level and kind of big systemic changes. But maybe as our way into this, you guys just have me thinking a lot about just education in general. And I don't want to assume that the people listening to this conversation are as ignorant as I am on some of these topics. But I guess I still am tempted to ask, like, are we looking at a bit of an educational failure here? I will assume that a lot of folks listening are way further along than I am on some of these topics, but it does seem like this is awfully, awfully fundamental and critical to like, I don't know, life. So why have these issues seemingly not been as much to the forefront when we're just even talking about like lawn care. What, what do you have thoughts on this? Most people in the United States are three or four generations off the farm. And so we've lost a lot of that connection to where our food comes from and how it grows. Most of us are susceptible to the convenience of going into the supermarket and picking up fresh fruit and produce and pretty much anything we want any time of year. And so we get lulled into that. Um, but particularly right now, what's going on with the COVID thing is a lot of people are getting reintroduced to gardening and raising chickens and raising bees. I know we, we're seeing it all around us that people have more time and connecting to their food, but also nature. And that's, that's really important. Um, so I think that there, there is an educational component to this that is really important and that's really where we have to start. I mean, we're, we wanted to kind of like, when we made this film, we wanted to connect the dots for people, but we wanted to people connect it in their own way. We wanted the beekeepers to tell the story and the environmentalists and the chefs. We didn't want to narrate it and put it down somebody's throat. We wanted people to take away what they wanted to take away from what these people had to say in a first person method. And um, we've had the great response of people saying, I look at my food in a different way. And that is, that is the highest compliment that, that we've gotten. Um, that is just that that is the goal is we want to connect people back when they go to the supermarket and pick up an apple. They think for a second about where that apple came from, who grew it perhaps, and that an insect was involved in pollinating it. We've said uh, that this is only important if you eat. And it's sort of joking, not joking, mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the subject matter. But there's so many of these, these 
important issues that come out through this and the, the cultural aspect of eating and sharing food and growing your own food. And I know that I never get tired of thinking about a tiny little lettuce seed, you know, put in the ground grows up into a head of lettuce. It just blows my mind every year that I've done it. And it's just, it, that is just amazing to me. And it's one of the great benefits I've, I've found of keeping bees myself is that it does sort of make me slow down a little bit and think about where are the bees going? That pollen is green. What around here has a green pollen on it right now and connect to where, what is going on in the natural world. And I think that if we connected more to our natural world around us, we would be in a better place. And it's also very, very, very healthy thing to do to slow down and listen to the birds and look at the flowers and, and just appreciate how this unbelievably complex system, ecosystem work and how we're part of that and we need to work with it and respect it. You have both made it pretty clear that there are a whole number of important issues going on here, right? It's not a single thing, but I, I guess before I let you go, I still am curious, like if you had a magic wand and were allowed to change you know, implement a big sort of systemic change. Do you have a clear like order of things? Like definitely if I got to do one thing, it would be this or it would be this. And then this is what I would do second. You know, are, are there two or three things that again, on a macro level, you would identify as being most impactful, most important uh, changes that we might be able to bring about? I think a really important thing that people can do, and it's really simple and everybody can do this, is ask questions. You know, where does this come from? Where does, the, where does this apple come from? Where does this fish come from? Where does this beef come from or milk or whatever? And asking those questions um, to the people in the supermarket or to the people at the farmer's market is really important because you're educating yourself, but you're also building a relationship with those people that you're buying stuff from and they respond to that whether it's a supermarket, they are gonna sell what people wanna buy. And if people don't wanna buy uh, heavy chemically laden something or other, uh, they're not gonna sell it. And, and also farmers wanna sell what you want to eat and they will grow things that you, if you have that relationship, they will grow things with, with you, you know, for you. Um, so that's one thing. And then I think pesticides is a big, uh, is a big issue. I think a lot of things would be better if we as consumers uh, used less of them. That's why you have screens on our houses is to keep insects out, you know? And so the, the practice of integrated pest management is really an important one in agriculture. And that is when you, you're reaching a point where the pests are a problem, at that point you spray. So much of agriculture now is done systemically and prophylactically where the pesticide is put on before there's even a pest around. And so that's kind of like, as, as one of the farmers in the film said to me, it's kind of like taking an aspirin in the morning because you might have a headache in the afternoon. And so I think those are, those are two things that, that uh, uh, people can do. And then also, you know, educate, you know, that is a big part of it. Uh, educate 
you know, your, your elected officials, your um, congressional officials, your state officials, um, your teachers, and involve kids. Kids are so enthusiastic about insects, and they're the great ambassadors, if you will. If they learn about something at school that gets them all excited and they bring it home to their parents, their parents will get interested in it too. And so that they're a great venue for, for passing information up and uh, to people that can make a difference. Sally, I want to give you a final word here. You know, Bill McKibben in the film says, we've simplified our agricultural system and we made it simpler and simpler and simpler. But farming isn't simple. And farmers are some of the hardest working people in America. And growing food is not simple. It's very hard work with joyous rewards. You get delicious food to eat. Um, we, We are lucky enough to live in a place where we have farmers who live near us. And we have a piece of earth that we can put seeds in and grow things. And I think that... We've seen a resurgence of urban farming. We're we're going to see and are seeing a resurgence of a victory garden, a 21st century version of a victory garden. And if we can somehow connect people to their food in a way that that disconnect has been happening for decades, you know, food doesn't need to be fast. And I think, you know, quality over quantity is something that's, a reasonable expectation or a reasonable goal. And I think, you know, what Peter said is true. You really only need to care about bees if you eat food. (laughs) Yes. Um, Well put. This is quite a film, and and I thank you both for your work on it, Um, and I'm excited for people to see it. And on that note, where will people be able to find this? Yes, we're, we're doing our digital release on June 16th. And at that point, it will be available on um, uh, Apple TV or iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Xbox, Vimeo On Demand. And then I think some local cable companies, Time Warner and Comcast, are going to be doing On Demand as well. And uh, we're still doing um, community screenings from time to time. Mm -hmm. Those have had to stop. Uh, largely mm-hmm. because of the coronavirus thing, but people are are asking about showing it in drive-ins, and uh, and we've done some digital screenings, virtual screenings. But it's uh, it's it's really it's a this film is a conversation starter, and so it's really great to see it with a group of people that you can talk about it afterwards and exchange ideas and uh, and try and make it better in your own community. And so that's what we found over the past year that that's just been a spectacular experience for us to be able to share it with people and and then talk about it, talk about the the issues, the food issues in local communities. This has been a pleasure. Um, The film is terrific. It's funny, I was watching it and I just kept hitting pause because I kept writing down questions and different potential topics for this conversation. And it's kind of stunning to me because I think we got through like about maybe 30% of the things going on in the film. And so, I, you know, there are sometimes I think a conversation like this, someone might get done listening to it and think like, I think I got a sense of the issues and the rest. I assure you, there are a ton of things that we didn't talk about here. So please go see this film. And um, it's really a remarkable thing. And, and uh, again, as somebody who... Uh, has been too ignorant for too long on some of these things. I really, I, I am personally thankful to, to both of you for, uh, for, for making this available. And uh, I've learned a lot already. Well, thanks for having us on. It's been a real privilege to be here and talk to you about it. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. We'll talk to you soon. 
That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Peter and Sally for the conversation. And again, you can check out The Pollinators tomorrow, June 16th, on pretty much all digital platforms, including iTunes and Amazon and Google Play and Vimeo On Demand. And you can check out the trailer for the film right now in the show notes to this episode on our Blister website. Thanks, everybody. Please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again next week.